We all heard the mnemonic muffin rise and lid falls, but what is it described to or when is it used? It's used when we have a lesion that we cannot see, see we cannot see on a CC view and we see it on MLO. So we obtain a lateral radio lateral view in order to localize it. So we have MLO view and a lateral view. And the goal is to localize where the lesion or what clock face we can give to a lesion. And that's when the mnemonic apply. Muffin rise, meaning medial located lesions would be more superior or more superior on lateral view. And lid falls, a laterally located lesion would become more inferior on a lateral view. So for example, if we have a lesion on MLO at straight up 12 o'clock, but since we don't see it on CC, we only know that it's superior. Then we get an ML view, and the ML view shows us that the lesion or would fall down, meaning it has more inferior location than MLO view. So that tells us lid falls, and so the lesion is lateral. So instead of 12 o'clock, we know it has to be lateral to 12. Depends on which side of the breast, if it's lateral. So it's if we're talking about the left breast, lateral 12, so it's at 2 o'clock. On the other hand, if that same lesion in the left breast had rise or on the ML view is more superior than MLO view, so muffin rise, which means that left breast lesion instead of 12 o'clock is actually medial to 12 o'clock, which means it's approximately at 10 o'clock or the inner upper quadrant of the breast. Again, muffin rise and lead falls. This relates to projection of a mass on pure lateral view from MLO view. If a MLO lesion becomes higher than its original position on the ML view, then that means it's more medial in location. If a lesion falls or becomes inferior on the ML view compared to its MLO position, then lid falls, which means it's a lateral located lesion. What is sclerosing adenosis? Again, sclerosing adenosis. This is an important lesion because it can show up as a multiple choice either to know the term or to exclude it as being the answer. And it basically a benign condition of proliferative terminal duct lobular units. So increased number of asini and glands in the terminal duct lobular units. Again, sclerosing adenosis, benign condition, and refers to proliferative or increased number of the asini and their glands within the terminal duct lobular units. Which factors increases the risk of developing breast cancer without involvement of genetics? Meaning these are factors that we can control and are known to increase risk of breast cancer. Not all of them we can control, but they're personal factors for each person or individual. There are six of them. Number one, early menarche or late menopause, meaning 
prolonged or longer exposure of the breast to estrogen and null parity or late parity, meaning no pregnancy or pregnancy at a later age. And finally, hormone replacement therapy or obesity. All of these factors, if you look at them, they involve exposure to estrogen or increased exposure to estrogen. So young age, we start menarche at an earlier age, so the breasts are more exposed to estrogen compared there to peers. Later age of menopause, again, longer duration of exposure to estrogen. Null parity, no pregnancy. Again, pregnancy is related to progesterone exposure, and there is increased exposure of progesterone in pregnancy compared to estrogen. So null parity increases exposure to estrogen compared to progesterone or late parity. Late parity meaning later pregnancy. So there is increased exposure to estrogen and then later pregnancy falls in the same category as null parity, meaning there is longer exposure of estrogen to progesterone. Hormone replacement therapy. This refers really to estrogen replacement therapy. Most of the hormones are a combination. They have some progesterone-only hormones for contraceptives, but we're talking about hormone replacement therapy, and that is referral to typically used for menopausal symptoms, and those are estrogen-based. And finally, obesity. There is a cycle that I'm not going to go into details, but know that fat cells produce estrogen. Again, fat produces estrogen. And so obesity contributes to increased risk of breast cancer. What is the difference between asymmetry and focal asymmetry? Asymmetry is a single view finding, either CC or MLO. Anyway, it's a single view finding, asymmetry. Focal asymmetry, it's asymmetry except it's in two views. Again, Focal asymmetry, two views, asymmetry, a single view finding. Now, what is the difference between focal asymmetry and a mass that goes based on the borders? A mass has convex outward or outward bulging borders. Asymmetry or non-mass has concave or bulging inward borders. Again, asymmetry is a single view finding. Focal asymmetry is two-view finding with concave borders. A mass has convex or convex outward borders, meaning they're bulging out as a mass. And asymmetry or focal asymmetry, which is in two-view, has concave borders. With regards to BIRAD ultrasound mass descriptors, what are our options? We can describe mass orientational ultrasound either parallel or non-parallel. That's it. Parallel meaning it's an oval mass. The long axis of the mass is parallel to the rest of the adjacent soft tissue. Non-parallel meaning it's a round mass or a mass that is taller than wide. And that is considered suspicious finding again. Non-parallel or parallel, non-parallel is suspicious for malignancy.
what are the indications of breast MRI. So breast MRI is a new modality of testing and it has not been thoroughly evaluated for its use but there are few clear indications where it plays a pivotal role in diagnosis of breast cancer. Those include screening of high-risk patients, screening or examining patients with disease, but we don't know the extent of the disease, typically in ILC situations where we have a axillary metastasis without a known primary, meaning lymphadenopathy on the axilla, biopsy showing cancer, but mammogram and ultrasound are negative. And when we have a possibility of silicon implant rupture, again, silicon implant rupture, axillary metastasis without a known primary, extent of disease when it's unable to be evaluated in a setting of a known cancer, and finally, high-risk screening for patients. Prior episode, we discussed the benign nipple discharges and the etiologies for them. Now we're going to talk about properties of malignant nipple discharge. If you remember, we mentioned few colors. We said black, white, green, yellow is considered benign. Now, two colors we need to know for malignant blood discharge, which is bloody and serous discharge. Again, bloody and serous discharge. Serous sounds, you know, that it should be benign, but it's actually malignant. Again, bloody or serous discharge. Unilateral breast. We said benign if it's bilateral. We said benign include multiple duct discharge. If it's a single duct discharge, it's also malignant. And finally, we said secretable or expressible breast discharge is considered benign. On the other hand, spontaneous breast discharge is considered malignant. Again, let's review them. Properties of malignant nipple discharge include bloody or serous color, unilateral, single duct, and spontaneous. Properties of benign nipple discharge include black, white, green, or yellow in color, bilateral, Multiple ducts and expressible breast discharge are all considered benign features. What is the average number of ducts per nipple? Approximately 8 to 12 ducts empty into the nipple. Again, we're talking about the final ducts that empty it into a nipple. So 8 to 12 ducts per nipple. This is not really important, but it can be asked on a test. But it also gives us perspective for when we're doing galactogram or where we inject a needle inside a duct. The breast duct is not really small, so if you imagine the nipple size and there are 12 or 8 to 12 ducts within the nipple, so it's somewhat of a decent size that we can stick a 30-gauge needle into it. What are the MRI features of intracystic papilloma? Again, intracystic papilloma MRI features typically shows an enhancing nodule within a non-enhancing T2 bright cyst. So intracystic papilloma, a papilloma within a cyst, will appear as a nodule within a non-enhancing cyst. Obviously, the cyst would be T2 bright, T2 bright, and on contrast imaging, 
contrast imaging is done in T1, so the cyst itself would be T1 dark, and the nodule would enhance. Again, intracystic papilloma, enhancing nodule within a non-enhancing cyst. In regards to coarse heterogeneous calcifications, how are they described, and what is their BIRAD category? Again, we're talking about coarse heterogeneous calcifications. They're described as irregular conspicuous calcifications with size variable between 0.5 to 1 ml, and they can become coalesce and become larger. They are a key thing for them is they are smaller than dystrophic calcification. Remember, dystrophic calcification, we said our calcifications from trauma to the breast. Coarse heterogeneous calcifications have a positive predictive value of 15% of being malignant, which means they are BIRAD 4B. Just to review, we said BIRAD 4A is 2 to 10%. BIRAD 4B is 10 to 50%. BIRAD 4C is 50 to 95%. And coarse heterogeneous calcifications are BIRAD 4B with positive predictive value of 15%, and they're typically coarse calcification, but yet smaller than dystrophic calcification. Going back to the basics, let's discuss mass descriptors for mammogram and ultrasound, meaning these are the only words that we're allowed to use when we're describing a mass on a mammogram. For mammogram, we can describe a mass either oval, round, or irregular. Anything outside of that is not approved. So oval, round, or irregular. For ultrasound, it's the same. Oval, round, or irregular. So for both ultrasound and mammogram, we have the same descriptors, which are oval, round, or irregular. What are some BIRAD descriptors for mammogram mass margin. So we talked about the shape saying oval, round, or irregular are the shape descriptors. For the margin on mammogram, we can use the word circumscribed, indistinct, microlobulated, speculated, or obscured. Again, margin descriptors for mammogram are circumscribed, indistinct, microlobulated, speculated, and obscured. For density on a mammogram, we have either a high density or a low density, or equal density or fat-containing. And density is in regards to adjacent normal breast tissue. So can be either high, low, or equal density to adjacent breast tissue or normal fibroglandular tissue, or it can be fat-containing lesion. These are the only approved terms that we can use. What surgical approach is used for malignant nipple discharge? Central duct excision. Again, malignant nipple discharge, we treat it with central duct excision. Most common etiology for true malignant processes, either papilloma or papillary carcinoma, and it's treated with central duct excision. We can use wire localization if the duct is greater than two centimeters from the nipple, meaning the ducts, as they become closer to the nipple, it's easier to identify them. 
but as they are far away from the nipple, greater than two centimeter, then we might have difficulty localizing the mass in surgery. And so we use wire localization prior to surgery to remove the, to perform central duct excision if it's greater than two centimeters. Unilateral or partial absence of the pectoralis muscle with associated ipsilateral upper extremity hypoplasia. This is also associated with ipsilateral breast hypoplasia or aplasia. Again, what we call a unilateral absence of the pectoralis muscle with ipsilateral hypoplasia of the associated shoulder, including the breast tissue, it's Poland syndrome. Again, Poland syndrome is absence of basically pectoralis muscle and associated tissue on the epsilateral side. Here is a tricky scenario. What do you do when you go to, comp to perform a stereoguided biopsy for a breast and when you put the breast in compression, the breast compresses less than 20 millimeter or less than two centimeters. So it's a small breast and compresses less than two centimeter. So what would you do? At that point, you would not perform stereoguided biopsy. Rather, you will mark the lesion for excisional biopsy. Again, we cannot biopsy a breast that compresses to less than two centimeter or 20 millimeter. We can perform ultrasounded guide biopsy, but for stereoguided biopsy, that's a contraindication. What is the anatomic difference between men and women who get breast cancer? Men do not have breast lobules because lobules depend on progesterone. And because they do not have lobules, they do not get lobules-related pathology, so they do not get lobular carcinoma, they do not get fibroadenomas, and they do not get breast cyst. So again, men do not get fibrocystic changes, they do not get fibroadenoma, and they do not get lobular carcinoma. Define global asymmetry. Previously, we talked about focal asymmetry and asymmetry alone. We said asymmetry refers to a single view finding, and focal asymmetry is a two view finding. And the difference between focal asymmetry and a mass, we said that the borders, the borders of a mass are can convex or outward bulging. Borders of focal asymmetry is concave. Developing or global, sorry, global asymmetry is basically relative increased tissue density compared to contralateral breast. So there is an increased density in a single region of the breast that is new. And when compared to the opposite side, there is more density or more concentration of breast tissue at the site in question. And that is consistent with global asymmetry.